Lord Jesus, we recognize that our lives are all about you. You desire everything we have to offer. Lord Jesus, help us to not bring a half-hearted effort to you, Lord, a half-hearted life to you, God, but help us through your Holy Spirit and through your mercy to give everything over to you, Jesus, to surrender everything to you, to say, Lord Jesus, you are the best investment that we can make in this life. Not one that is temporary and that fades away, but one that is eternal. We offer this up to you now in your name. Amen. Please have a seat. So the year is 587 BC, and Jerusalem is under siege by King Nebuchadnezzar II. His empire would stretch from the Mediterranean Sea to the Persian Gulf. And this is when the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah for this passage. Now, Jeremiah was in a bad state of affairs. He had been prophesying God's judgment against the people of Israel for many years and against Judah. So King Zedekiah had locked him up for treason, effectively saying, well, look, you've been prophesying all this time that me as king are going to be killed and captured by the Babylonians and that a whole nation is going to fall. You're clearly a traitor. So Zedekiah is locked up and his city is under siege and the surrounding area is being ravaged. So what is God's message to Jeremiah in this dire situation? Do you think it's one of rescue, of don't worry, it's all going to be okay? No, it went something like this. Your uncle's son, Hamel, is going to ask you to buy a field back near home, near Anathoth. Buy it. So you can imagine Jeremiah's like, oh yes, that was the field I was going to buy earlier, but then I got put in prison, and then I got besieged. Okay. So you can almost imagine looking out from Jerusalem. Anathoth was about three miles north of the city, so you can imagine he was in the palace, so probably you know, quite high up. Maybe he could see out of a city. So you can imagine him looking over the walls. Oh, there's, oh yes, I'm locked in this place. And there's the massive Babylonian army. And then there's the ruin, the countryside. And then there's my field. And that's the field you want me to buy. He might not even get to, to own the field. The whole nation's just been invaded and, and trashed and the people have been taken away from the country. It was clearly a terrible financial investment. So this made me think, what are the worst financial investments in history? Because this is a pretty terrible one. So quick Google gave me two, two, uh, two ideas here. So the co-founder of a tech giant, Apple, sold his stock in Apple for $800 back in 1976, now will now be worth $80 million. In 1965, a French lawyer, André Francois, he thought he'd invest in an apartment, so he came to an arrangement with Mrs. Calament, who was a 90-year-old uh, lady with no, no family, 
So he said, I'd pay you um, the equivalent in francs of 330 pounds a month until you die, and then I'll own your apartment. So 30 years later, uh, Andre Francois died, and Mrs. Calments was still alive at the age of 120. And she continued to live for a further two years and died as the oldest person in the world at that time. And um, his family had to pay for those further two years of, of, of money. So another terrible investment. So I wonder what the equivalent of buying this field today would be. I wonder if it would be something like buying a farming field outside of a Ukrainian town of Bakhmut. So as expected, Hanamel comes along, buy my field. So obediently, Jeremiah does this. We don't know how big the field was or what its worth was, but it was probably you know, not an unreasonable price that he paid. They go through the legal proceedings, they have the deeds witnessed, they store one copy away in a sealed clay, um, clay jug, and then they have one copy which is easy to access. So God says in verse 15, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. And that's why he's storing one of these deeds away for future generations. But I don't think that message kind of struck home with Jeremiah the first time. We then see this back and forth between Jeremiah and God throughout the rest of chapter 32. And Jeremiah's reminding God, look, you've brought your, your right judgment down on this people. We're besieged. We're, we're ruined. Why make me buy this field? This is a terrible idea. And God's answer in verse 26, he says, I am the Lord, the God of the whole human race. Is anything too hard for me? He then lists the charges against Israel. Idol worship, bow worship, sacrificing their children to the God of Moloch. And he promises to give Israel and Judah over to the Babylonians. And Jeremiah is probably thinking, exactly, why make me invest in this field? This would suggest it would be useful. So God goes on in verse 37. I will surely gather them all from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I'll bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. He goes on in verse 42. This is what the Lord says. As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them prosperity I've promised. Once more fields will be brought in this land of which you say it is a desolate waste without people or animals for it's being given over to the Babylonians. We can see what a dire state things were. A desolate waste. We've seen the horrifying pictures of a war-torn country all over the news. And this would have been different but in a way very similar. But God is saying, this deed you have is of value. This investment you have made into this field is not worthless because I, the Lord, will bring the people of Israel and Judah back and I will restore them to this land and it will be fruitful again. 
I have not abandoned Israel. I have not abandoned my covenant with you. So that deed sealed up for the future. That is part of my promise to you. I will restore the fortunes of Israel. So what we're not told here is what is the response of everybody else in Jerusalem? Are they just a bit more worried about the huge army outside than to pay attention to what Jeremiah is investing in? Did they think he was mad, deranged? Or did they see that this was a sign that God was going to restore the people of Israel after this and that God's covenant was still holding true despite them not? Nigel last week talked about the different steps beyond the prophets. The first one, coming about very soon after this passage, where the Jewish people were exiled into Babylon and taken there against their will. They were then returned with Nehemiah to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple, but all was not well. Then the next step was Jesus coming and cleansing the temple, and then his resurrected body becoming the new temple as the old one was destroyed by the Romans 40 years after Jesus' death. It is in this everlasting covenant that we are now living, which Jeremiah talks about. But we also know that there is a final step when Jesus returns, because we know that singleness of heart and that everlasting worship which Jeremiah talks about hasn't come to be. We know that we, even as we follow Jesus, don't have a singleness of heart that we continually make mistakes. So what does this tell us about Jesus? Well, we've seen here Jeremiah invest into what would seem a worthless field in a country who individually and collectively have turned against God. They're completely overwhelmed by the invaders. Yet God tells Jeremiah to invest because God is going to redeem it and he is going to do something beyond what he can see. Well, when I think of bad investments and a high price for something poor, broken, and wasting away, then this brings me back to Jesus and the price he paid on the cross. The eternal perfect Jesus, the very creator himself, paying his life for something that he had created, something broken and messed up that would let him down, that is, humanity. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 about what Jesus has given. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We are alive, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in, your, in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And he goes on in verse 16. Therefore, do not lose heart, for outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed by day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, 
but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So Paul writes here that we have this treasure of a knowledge of Jesus in us. And he describes it as this clay jar, this fragile, plain object which carries the most beautiful and wonderful of treasures, which is Jesus' mercy to us. Jeremiah too sealed up the deed of the land into a clay jar for the future generations to see that he was investing in God's faithfulness. So what does this mean? Well, Jeremiah well knew the fragility of his own life. He had been beaten, imprisoned. He was continually at risk as he prophesied God's word to his own people. And eventually he would be taken to Egypt against his will where he would die and he wouldn't see Jerusalem restored in his lifetime. Likewise, Paul is saying to the Corinthians here that though we are weak and fragile, we have this wonderful news of Jesus inside of us. And despite wasting away, and despite age, frailty, illness, depression, cancer, arthritis, damaged relationships, despite all of these things working in us, that there is life as well, and that life is coming from what God has given us. And what does this mean? It means that the ultimate investment isn't in private healthcare. It means that the ultimate investment isn't in the best stocks and shares. It means the ultimate investment isn't in the most beautiful appearance or the best holidays or the best cars or the best house. It means the ultimate investment is in something unseen because that is what is eternal. And we see Paul talks about these light and momentary afflictions. And it seems almost blasé to put life as something like that. But that's not coming from someone with no experience. Paul was someone who was beaten, brought to the point of death, imprisoned, and eventually executed. But he knew that what he could see and what was happening to him wasn't the ultimate thing. It wasn't the definition of what success meant. He knew that he was investing in something eternal, something that couldn't be taken away from the things that happened to him. He had his eyes fixed on what is unseen. And like Jesus, Jeremiah too invested in God's future promise and the future redemption that Jesus would bring. So what does it mean to invest in and choose God? It's not purely about money. It's not purely about time. But it's more about our whole selves, a whole direction of what we long and desire for, what we think, what we do, why we do it, what we have. And that's a really big challenge. But first, you have to know what God wants. Jeremiah had a close relationship with God, a deep knowledge of his word, and was constantly talking to him in prayer. So a starting point is always to know God's word 
and to pray to him regularly. And it's from this place of relationship that we can recognize what God wants us to do, what talents and time we have to use and how. And we've seen Jesus and Jeremiah have that servant nature about them where they obediently follow God, whatever he calls them to do. And Jeremiah and Jesus did not have flashy ministries. They didn't look good by the world's standards. They didn't develop their own wealth. They didn't have any children. They didn't have grand buildings built by them. But they invested where God called them to invest. They went where God called them to go. They weren't afraid to look foolish. They weren't afraid to be unpopular. But they chose to invest in God's kingdom above the things that they could immediately see. And they surrendered all to God. They didn't hold anything back. And I think our challenge today to ourselves, to myself, is to look at my life, our lives, and think, what are we holding back from God? What are we saying? It's okay for you to have this, Jesus, but I'm going to hold this back for myself. How can we invest in the eternal, invest in God? Don't hold back anything from Jesus today. Turn to him and say, I surrender all to you. Let's pray.